Hi and welcome to the Andy Gorman One Putt Podcast and I hope everybody is doing well. I'm here with my good friend and special guest Gareth Shaw from Mediate. How are you Gareth? Very good Andy, loving all the golf that we've had and all the sport that we've had over the weekend. It's, I've been glued to the TV. Sports fest at the moment isn't it? And the weather's playing ball too. It's, uh, mm. it's amazing. Um, you know British summer is actually behaving itself. Um, I wonder if we'll get a bit of rain this next this next week at Silverstone. So the second uh, Grand Prix there, it's great to see Lewis Hamilton travelling around the track on three wheels on the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, one driving one of those cars must be incredible on four wheels alone on three. But to win that Grand Prix the way he did yesterday, but um, you know, I'm pretty sure that'll be uh, a spicy one next weekend if we get a little bit of weather in there. It'll be a little bit of rain, Silverstone, and without rain isn't quite right, I don't think. But uh, but but well, <laughs> talk about rain and good weather. I mean, the state of the golf courses. Wow, how impressive was the Forest of Arden? And of course, Close House last week with um, our mm. Tories win, which we didn't cover uh, on Monday, although we posted on Monday because we we got in a little early. Um, just you had a nice weekend and. Uh, away with your family, um, outing nice. as you were, although barging, I think he said, um, <laughs> it was barging. Barge is a, he's on a canal, he's a long boat, it is um, a, a little cramped, um, cozy, I think is the way that they'll be uh, described in the catalogues if you put if you book in one. But it's a fantastic <laughs> photo there, mate. It's, um, yeah, yeah, be, beautiful time and. Yeah, it was nice to get away with the family and, and see some different kinds of scenery. Beautiful. I think, when, you know, one of the things that we are able to do is embrace um, our local countryside a little bit more as we're not travelling overseas as much at the moment with the, the current situation. And, um, you know, well done you, you know, for, for doing that. It's a fabulous area of the world, which actually you can only see by boat, which is incredible. So, uh, well mm. done. Um, yeah. Do you think that's that's something that we're seeing now with this kind of UK swing? Almost not forgotten golf courses, but like the Forest of Arden, that used to be a kind of staple in the Balfour, mm. a staple on the European. They're going, oh, God, well, this this makes good golf. This makes good watching, this this golf course does. It, it, it does. I mean, in fact, I think it was um, Wayne Riley was saying how good the Forest of Arden would actually be as a Ryder Cup venue. I think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, to be honest with you, I mean, I know the Forest of Arden very well. Um, I'm glad that the tour players struggle with the ninth hole as well as I do. Oh, it's a horrible tee <laughs> shot. Uh, that gives me nightmares. It's one of those that you think about the night before and then you're walking up seven and eight and you're thinking, oh, no. And then the hotels are staring at your left and trees and everything else, isn't it? Glad wow. it's not just me and for a bit of a sports psyche for you to come out with those kind of comments. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I know it is difficult. I mean, it is one of those uh, holes that I'm glad I've got past it when I have. And, you know, I've tried to figure out how to play it as a three-shotter hitting five iron off the tee. And I think you've got about 180-yard carry over water now off the back tee, which is quite something in itself. It, I mean, it is a ridiculously difficult hole, um, you know, with a blind approach shot if you don't get it far enough up the fairway. It's... Um, yeah, I wouldn't want it to be the 18th. That is for sure. Um, you know, that would be that would 
be impressively difficult. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want a one-shot lead or have to make birdie. Um, but I think if you're playing in the last group with the scores not not already in, it would make entertaining television um, if it was the last hole and, and there were three people with the chance of winning it coming up the last because you could win it with a double, um, you know. Yeah, what do you think with that, with, with Thomas Dietrich's port? What, what were your thoughts there? Um, obviously feel for him, you know, as a, as, as a putting coach, you know, you can make the observations. He, he, I think there was a misread. Um, he looked like he'd given a little bit of a nudge as well. I think he was, he, you know, there, there were a couple of putts missed on that last green, to be fair. Um, and I think, you know, look, we're playing under, or these guys are playing under some incredible pressure and, you know, it's all very different to what they're used to. But at the same time, when they're actually out there in the mix, even though there's only a handful of people watching, they're not, they're zoned out. These guys are zoned out. They're not distracted by the crowd, um, you know, when they're there. In fact, they're more likely to be distracted by a lack of crowd. I think it's easy sometimes for some players, you know, this is easier to get focused when there's a crowd there. Um, yeah. You know, or the intensity of the tournament goes up, um, you know, you get more focused. But yeah, I was a little bit surprised that Dietrich. I think he'd hold out very nicely. I thought Sam Horsfield um, did very well. I think he battled a few inner demons along the way um, and and overcame them. I thought he was going to run away with it. I thought that was a, every chance he'd have got to twenty five under par. To be fair, you know, for the tournament, um, given the way that he was playing, you know, after what was it, forty five holes. Um, you know, and then a three put out of nowhere and sort of, you know, derailed him a little bit. And, you know, I think he did much the same yesterday. So for him, uh, sorry, Saturday, for him to come back on Sunday and to claim his maiden victory, um, you know, I think it was very impressive. And that shot that, you know, his second shot into 17 was was spectacular because, you know, he's five yards away from knocking it in the water. And, you know, that's, that's the margins of winning. Um, you know, so yeah, hats off to him. Really, he's um, you know, it's always great to get the first win under the belt, and um, you know, I'm sure that Dietrich will do the same, you know, fairly shortly, as long as he, you know, he doesn't wrestle with, you know, the fact that he missed the part on the last green. You know, as we've all done it. Um, you know, some for for bigger purses or, you know, higher magnitude. But um, yeah, you know, it's I, I don't think it was a. It's certainly nothing sinister. So you know, he just. I don't think he overread the putt and wasn't sure of the break. He wasn't fully committed. I don't think it was too bad. You know, he just thought that it may just break a little bit more than it did. And, you know, of course it didn't. So, uh, yeah, 15 minutes later, he's sitting there collecting second second prize. But um, not a bad week's work. No, and, and I think, again, it just shows the quality, the strength and depth of the European Tour. I know they, they say in the PGA Tour that these guys are good, but I think the quality of golf that we've seen it, at Close House and at Forest of Arden the last few weeks has been, been immaculate, really good shooting. It has, and, um, you know, two, I would say, different golf courses, but um, certainly, obviously, we know that, you know, Forest of Arden's flat in comparison to, um, you know, Close House being quite quite hilly, I think is a, is a fair statement. Um, so two different courses that would test the players, and, um, you know, yeah, it was just good to see, you know, some good golf being played, to be fair. It, um, you know, I don't think the courses have had, you know, that much time really to get prepared. I mean, you know, you'd normally have, 
you know, sort of 12 months, 18 months to get prepared for a tournament of that magnitude. Um, you know, for them, it just shows you how well they've managed to keep the golf courses, um, you know, in great condition, um, you know, all the way through, you know, this lockdown period. And, uh, you know, they've worked really hard to do that. I'm looking forward to seeing the other venues as well. It's going to be a you know, great summer's worth of, uh, of golf. Just wish I could get in there and watch a bit myself. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the the greens look slick, Andy. I I heard Brandon Stone being mic'd up, and he was kind of commenting how, how lightning quick the greens looked. Especially, I think he was on the back of ten, mm. and he, he had to put about six foot past, and he was a bit like, "Wow, that was that was quick." Yeah, you know, I, I mean, again, to be fair, I mean, I know the course well, and they're good all year round. To be fair, they obviously get a little bit damp in the winter, but they do tend to run pretty slick and. Um, you know, the ground staff there do a great job as the, you know, as, as I'm sure all of these venues, you will see, you know, really good putting surfaces because we've had such great weather and, you know, we, not a ridiculous amount of golf on the golf courses during the, the recovery period from winter to, uh, to summer, spring and, um, you know, opportunity for them to uh, to get a great surface on them and then they can nurture that for the rest of the season but um yeah we've got mm -hmm. no droughts so i don't think they'll have any issues between now and and the end of the month when we get to see the belfry uh, at the end of the year and which is the one i think i'm really looking for forward to seeing just just how spectacular that course looks on tv is has been lost for a few years we've not seen it like you say it uh, yeah, exactly. I remember the good old days, the good old days, Benton and Edges. I think that was my first competitive tournaments that I went and watched. And it, yeah, Lee Westwood walking around with an ice cream. It just seemed a, a very relaxed <laughs> tournament. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I'm over, I worked a few of those events, as, as you know. I'm crikey, 1989, I was actually on the golf course itself, learning a bit about how golf courses are prepared. And, you know, that uh, the English Open and the, um, and, and the uh, the Ryder Cup of that that year, it, it was you know a lot of fun to be outside rather than you know sort of being inside and looking after the uh, the golfing patrons. You know to actually look after the golf course and learn a bit about how to prepare a course for for a tournament was just incredible. And um, you know there are a few secrets which I'll take to the grave. Um, a few others that worked with me maybe won't, but um, yeah, there's uh, you know there's. <laughs> The beauty about getting it ready for TV is, of course, you can make it ready for TV. Um, but if you're sitting on top of it, you know, it doesn't look quite as good as it does on TV. But that's the beauty about it. But, um, you know, golf courses have come on in different, you know, much different from what they were back in 30 years ago. Um, you know, it's so much more science has gone into preparing a golf course. And, you know, we talk about science, you know, obviously we technology allows me to do a better job in what I do and you know that ultimately um, you know that the technology that allows us to prepare a golf course you know to to fix problems on the golf course which you know you wouldn't even know that it was a problem but you know if you left it and there'd be no grass there so you know it's amazing what what we can do these days in in terms of golf courses as long as the budget is endless <laughs> which of course yeah, yeah. so um but when did you start seeing that emergence in technology, Andy? Especially in coaching. When did, well, back in your experience, when did things start appearing in which was a little bit different? Um, I took my first head pros job in 1994, um, which is uh, you know where Robert Rock has his academy now in Litchfield, and um, the 
you know, I, I knew then that I needed to do video um, technology. So, you know, but I was using video technology before, before then for corporate events and um, not so much for teaching, but, you know, recording corporate golf days and, and the like. So I'm going to say my first video purchase which seems like a lump now, the size of it. I'm not um, sure I understand. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've got a comment from um, Siri. Um, yeah, once you've got a, um, you know, that great big piece of equipment that we, we you know, we, can, we now, you know, it's on our phones, isn't it? The technology that sits on our phones is amazing. Um, it, I'm going to say 93, 92, 93 was when I had my first video uh, camera. Um, but I was introduced to video camera when I was a junior. Um, Martin Hall was my, was my county coach. And this thing was, you know, talk about a, a lump. I mean, that was like a breeze block. Um, <laughs> was, yeah, just the most incredible uh, piece of equipment. It was either you had, a, you had a choice if you wanted to help Martin out to the car at the end of the coaching session, a bag of about 40 clubs with gadgets and everything else inside it. Uh, is um, four frames per second um, video camera, um, you know, and you just hoped that, you know, you could find the right spot to be able to see the impact point. I mean, invariably, you saw it about three, what we would now know as like 20 frames before and 40 frames after. Um, but, yeah, it's amazing, um, um, you know, when you, you know, when you look back at the technology of the cameras, you know, and you see what you can see or see what you, you know, you saw then and now what you can do on your phone, um, you know, and, but we were using cameras to, to help see what we thought we could see with the naked eye. And that was ultimately, I think, you know, I think we were all led by Ledbetter, wasn't we? You know, it, it was seen to be using video technology and, and because of that, then we felt like we had to use it, albeit, you know, we were spending, you know, like, I don't know, six months salary to buy one. Um, you know, it seemed like it, you know, so technology for me, early nineties was video. Um, and then when it comes down to things like launch monitors, I saw a launch monitor in the early nineties as well. Um, you know, which allowed me to do portable, um, coaching, albeit it was a little bit on the crude side. So, you know, for me, you know, the launch monitor sort of phase of, of coaching didn't come in until, well, putting launch monitor, uh, Sam Putt Lab, um, which obviously just measures the club, but rather than the ball. But yeah, Putt Lab for me was about 10, 12 years ago. Um, I had a Zenio putting platform, which allowed me to sort of maneuver around. I think I had that in about 2008, nine, something like that. Um, so that allowed me to measure putting a little bit more as well. Strike point, I was a little sort of striker bar that was stuck to the face of a putter. Um, it worked on about 60% of putters. So there was a few, especially if they had inserts, it never stuck really well. Um, but it did give me, you know, a lot of data that I was able to capture and work with, especially when you're out in the field and, you know, if you're remote coaching. And of course, launch mats and platforms, you know, were just, you know, those. And then of course, now we're into GC Quad and, you know, obviously, you've got your, your radar systems as well in flight scope and Trackman and the like. But, you know, hack motion, of course, Capto, um, 
my word, you know, blast. <laughs> there are endless amounts of products now which allow us to capture data. It's almost as if each one captures something specific, but you know, so you do feel like you have to have a you know a raft of them. No one product does all of it. Um, you know, manufacturers will tell you that they do, of course, but they don't. Um, you know, some some products track the ball the whole flight. Some products track the club through impact, so you get the data from that. And that's you know, but but no, there is no one product that's doing all of it, and that's why you see guys like Deshambo and and Woods, and you know, got multiple you know units hooked up and. You know, they're, they're getting data off the one and data off the other and, you know, comparing the two and, you know, they know what to take from the one and what to take off the other. You know, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's fascinating when you think that, you know, it's very easy to to spend, you know, £100,000 on a on a studio or, you know, sort of golf fittings centre and, you know, that's before you get started. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, when you think about it, you know, sort of a £20,000 here and, Thirty thousand pound there, and all of a sudden, you know, you've you've blown half of your budget. If you know, if you've got a hundred thousand, and it, you know, you got you need that today. You need it to confirm what it is that you, um, what you're seeing, because the player will question it, and that, and rightly, you know, if you are showing them something, you know, then they can actually see it, and they can see for themselves the data that they're um, that you're presenting. You know, rather than just saying, oh, you know, your hands are flicking there, you're adding a little bit of loft. If they don't feel that they are, um, you know, then to be able to show them, you know, what the club is doing in 3D form, what the, you know, the, the rise angle of the putter might be or the loft at the point of impact might be with a, with a you know, a, a video image, then to confirm it, you just, you know, player can't argue the data and, you know, the feel and real scenario of, uh, of what we do you know, is, uh, is so critical. So, you know, it allows us to fix faults quicker. And that, that means that we're more efficient at what we're doing. You know, that's the beauty about it. Um, he's being efficient. You've got to be efficient. It's as simple as that. You can, you know, you, you have real-time data as quickly as possible um, right in front of the player. Then you're starting to fix the player straight away. You know, and that's um, that, that for me as a coach is one of the most critical parts of being, you know, a coach. Um you know, because I don't want to, as I said this before, I don't want to be a coach that drags out the learning process. You know, get in, get in, get in, learn and get out. You know, that's not because I don't want clients to be with me, but I don't want them to be reliant on me. And, um, you know, I think that the most efficient way to do that is through, you know, the data capture of, of, of all this technology that we've got. Do you think now the player expects technology as well? To be included within there almost because somebody said to me once that Gareth were in the entertainment industry in terms of golf coaching and, and, and instruction so do you think it's that kind of part of the entertainment of the kind of Andy Gorman experience that you've got this amazing kind of state-of-the-art technology at your your fingertips um, I, I think I think certainly uh, I mean uh, I'm stumbling a little bit around the fact that somebody's called it an entertainment industry uh, or, you know, part of the entertainment side of things, it, you know, and there's nothing wrong with, with enjoying your golf experience, especially, you know, the learning process, um, you know, but, but for somebody to, to 
use the term entertainment is uh i get it i get why it's why it's being used but yeah you know i think the big deal when it comes down to technology is that um yes players do expect it and i think even the 20 handicapper expects it you know and that's not because you know i'm not trying to be derogatory to a 20 handicap golfer uh, by any means i think a 20 handicap golfer expects an expert to be able to you know one uh, illustrate and demonstrate what's what it is that they're seeing um i think from a coaching point of view by the very fact that we can show via data means that we don't have to you know, I started coaching, as you know, back in 1990, so 30 years ago. Um, and folk were going like, oh, you know, as soon as you start coaching, your own game gets affected. You know, and I was like, really? It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, all the demonstrations of the bad shots and you see so many bad shots that, you know, you'll be thinking about bad shots when you're standing over shots yourself. Well, okay. Um, well, I can certainly say that no more than I did before. Um you know, and I, I tried not to think of bad shots at any point in time, but I became a better golfer because I became more knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Albeit, you know, as we said before, the PGA training manual taught me how to how to yip putts rather than to, to do it well. So, you know, once I'd overcome that, yeah, I became a much better golfer. Um, you know, once I'd found, found my putting stroke again. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, the data allows us to, you know, we don't have to go and demonstrate what we see as much. So, you know, that that protects us as a coach, um, you know, much more. I think the, um, I, I just think that, you know, when it comes down to it, the expert has to have, the, the knowledge is, is, is absolutely critical. You know, you can't be an expert without the, without the knowledge. You've got to not just understand um what you're seeing you know why it's causing an issue but also obviously how to effectively cure it and um you know the how can you do that if you've got inferior data and you know inferior data would be well you know relying on the naked eye my eyes aren't anywhere near as good as they were 30 years ago um being able to see things albeit i can see a lot of things i can see even before i see the client i know exactly what i'm going to be expecting just based on the conversation um, you know, that we have preceding any consultation. And, um, you know, I think it's crucial as a, um, as an expert that you've got that, the ability to show in multiple, uh, platforms, um, you, you know, all the data that you see and, uh, you know, that then gives the, the, your customer, your client, you, you know, your, your golfer, the confidence that, you know, they're in the right environment to get fixed rather than, you know, some guy just charging a reasonable amount of money and stands there on the end of a range saying, yeah, do this, do this. You know, I think it's, um, you know, when you can show somebody exactly what they're doing or why they're doing it, you know, and then reference as to why they need to do something else, um, you know, and the results it's going to give them, it's going to stand everybody in good stead, that confidence as a player. Yeah, okay, I know, know what they need to do now. I can go away and work on that. So, yeah, data data just is is the ultimate in um allowing us to to get get golfers fixed quicker so, you know you don't you shouldn't have to suffer years like i did you know without with just a video i mean i looked at a video of me putting and i couldn't see anything wrong because it was all based on what i everything that was based on what i was taught to do doing what yeah. i was being taught to do you know and being told that i got 
poor transfer skills to take it to the from the studio to the range up to the golf course you know knock every five foot putt in you know in in practice knock every 40 foot putt within a you know half a club length you know and then take it onto the course and your first 40 foot putt comes up 15 foot short i mean it's like you know what why was that well of course you know you're standing over you're bent over a putter double and you know you you get a feel for it on the putting green that's fine but when you go out on the golf course you've just stood up to a couple of shots you've knocked them on the green and then you're having to bend over double over a putter it's you know, you, you have no feel, you've got no spatial awareness, you've got so many limited capabilities, um, you know, by this bent over double approach to putting. It's, um, you know, you wonder why we've got no feel, but, you know, this is why, you know, I had to find the solution myself. I mean, I couldn't go and find it anywhere. I had to dig it out myself and go and crack on. And I didn't have, this is the daft thing, I didn't have the technology available to me at that point in time, you know. But when I did, and I got part lab, and I was able to then identify that you know I've got a club face that's closing by a rate that is not excessively high, but was delivering a one degree closed club face at impact. I was able to identify what happened if I changed the club length, you know, and that was the confirmation for me as to why I was putting so much better with a slightly longer club, albeit you know, significantly longer compared to what I was using only a few months before as so I started to make the transition. But it meant that I could go from 31 and three quarters to 34, you know, and see an improvement and, and figure that that was the way to go. And then, you know, be handed a club that was an inch longer and see a significant improvement on top of that. And then refine that even further. And then go too far and then identify that actually you know what we've got the opposite miss now so we've gone too far and then we could just rein it in and just you know through the element of trial and error on me ultimately was able to then test with a few willing clients and subsequently you know impart that into my teaching doctrines and i think that's so important isn't it because i don't, on a, a fellow golf podcast i was listening to the, this morning um, they were talking about kind of putter length and they kind of come out with a statement about, I just usually go for a 34-inch putter, but there was no science behind it. And when we talked about on previous podcasts at the World Number One at the moment, John Rahm's putting with a 37-inch yeah. putter, Andy. Um, I, Justin Thomas last night on the golf, kind of, you may know Andy better than I do, but looked like he was putting with a, for, for us, a, a 35 or above length putter. I don't think he had a, a, a small no. putter just because of the way he was standing to the, the, the golf putt there. It looked it was a more athletic posture, a better free yeah, motion. Yeah, yeah, a lot of folk ask the question about you know, who, who do you admire in putting? And I've got to say that that putting stroke looks as good as any, um, you know, to the, to the non-naked eye to TV. You know, Justin Thomas has got a great stroke and... Um, you know, and it comes down to it, ultimately, it's about getting a putter in your hand that allows you to be at your utmost balance. And it's that that's the bit that is the major challenge, is being able to get into the utmost balance. And once you're in that place, then your brain completely frees up. And, you know, you know, from a sports psychology point of view, the more free the brain is, the more instinctive you are at moving. So, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. Justin Thomas, for me, you know, is, is not necessarily the epitome of... of of putting you know he's but he certainly is very close um and i would love to see what the raw data actually is um you know on, on 
you know all aspects of his uh, of his putting um and it may well be that you know he's got long arms for for his height i don't think he's particularly tall and you know sort of in our category of around the five nine mark and mm -hmm. um you know if i remember rightly anyway and so subsequently i think he's um you know he's using the right length of club if it is around you know so 35 35 and a half um you know if he's got long arms then that's going to help him no end but um you know to use a slightly shorter club but you know you should still be using a club that's long enough for you like we said before you know we'll continue to say this whilst we're doing podcasts and whilst i'm teaching if you put a pair of shoes on that are too small your feet are going to get cramped if you manage to get them in and if they're too small you can't get your feet in at all you know and if we ever fitted into a putter rather than onto it it would be plainly obvious for us unfortunately the only obvious thing is that you end up with a little bit of a backache and you just have a few stretches and you crack on for a few more minutes and you stretch again and have a few more minutes and you stretch again, you know, it just becomes a little bit, um, you know, for me, nonsensical, but you know, if you're none the wiser, then, you know, then it's not nonsensical. It's just what you do. Um, you know, I did it, you know, I did it for a long time. So, you know, it's, um, I put it down to naivety, not ignorance. And, um, you know, the naivety of not knowing that there is an alternative because we don't think there are when you walk into a shop and, you know, there might be a hundred putters on the sh on a big shop, you know, um, a big store shelf and 90 plus are, you know, 34 inches and, you know, there might be four or five, 33 and four or five, 35s. And, you know, you barely can see them, you know, unless they were put together, of course, but, yeah, it's, it, you know, still poses its massive challenge to me. But, um, you know, we're, we're here to beat the drum of getting correctly fitted for your putter and, you know, going through the scientific process of getting into balance, you know, and getting, a, getting to understand why, you know, balance is absolutely critical to putting. You won't feel like you're falling over if you bent over a putter that's too short. That's not the point. It's what the brain's doing, which you're not aware of. You know, and it's that that ultimately will bring us out the other side once you become aware of how the brain stabilizes and frees up and goes into a free, non-clouded, you know, space. And all of a sudden, you know, you put with instinct, and, you know, you put like these guys appear to when they're on tour, you know, well, the guys are knocking the putts in for sure, because we do see a few guys under pressure, you know, so the struggle a little bit. Yeah, we saw it with our the, the British lads, don't we, this weekend? Fitzpatrick and uh, uh, and Tom Lewis, they were, they were on a real good run and they missed a few short putts towards the end yeah. of the round when the, the really the uh, the flow of competition was, was, was getting to the grips, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, I, I, I really did fancy Tom Lewis to, to get in there and, you know, and certainly be vying to put enough pressure on to have, to get inside that... Um, that clubhouse with the clubhouse lead, I, you know, I was a little bit surprised at 16. It was a little unfortunate with what happened to his second shot. You know, obviously just got over, just over the green. We saw Kepkas do the same thing from his pitch shot. Um, you know, so, yeah, ultimately, you know, it's an extremely difficult place to come, to get up and down from, but he'd made a great fist of that approach shot. Uh, well, he putted it, didn't he, up the slope, not it and missed it mm. and then three putted the next and you know again i understand why he three putted the next he's trying to give it a go and he, you know ultimately sort of, i think he realized if he'd not if he'd made birdie at 16 you wouldn't have seen him three put 17 that is for sure so you know again just into the mind isn't it you know 
comes back to it. The technique is, you know, all well and good, but the mind still has to be strong and willing to be able to, to overcome the challenges that face winning tournaments. And, um, you know, these yeah. guys know darn sight better than we do. Um, but as coaches, you know, certainly, you know, you've got to be able to give the player the opportunity to be instinctive and, you know, allow their their best skills to come out because at the end of the day, they are incredibly talented individuals, you know, and they can, they can, they're so instinctive with all the other shots. It's just those, either the little fiddly ones around the greens or on the green itself that they become, you know, almost, uh, I don't know, rigid and mechanically minded and, you know, sort of trying to be so deliberate and, you know, we've got very exact intolerances, but that's not, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the instinctive flow and capabilities that they can play golf with and more than capable of having on the greens if they were, you know, if they so so desire. And, you know, your recreational golfer can do that as well. It's where a recreational golfer can really be, you know, so significantly better. And um, I had a guy last week, you know, sort of after, straight after the podcast that we did, we did on Friday morning, I coached all afternoon and I had a fellow in, um, and, you know, he was so keen to improve, you know, came in for his consultation. He said, yeah, go on, throw the book at me. I said, well, you know, we only do that if we can, you know, or if we need to, should I say. And um, came in, bless him, six foot five with a 34-inch butter. Um, <laughs> you know, said to him, I bet your back aches after about 30 seconds. He said, oh, crikey, if it gets that long. Um, so we built him a putter at 40... Uh, 40 inches and um, in fact it may have been 41 I don't have the spec in front of me it's in the studio but it may well have been 41 inches so I think I had to lengthen a club that um, was already on the shelf at 38 inches and um, he, he averaging four or five three putts around very few singles you know close to 38 40 putts around he had 32 putts smashed his handicap by seven or eight shots, beat his playing partners, took all the money. Um, and, you know, he said that's just after one consultation. I, you know, I'm a believer, you know, and, um, you know, we're, we're back in this week. Um, I think he's moved his holiday in order to come in and have another putting lesson this week. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. You know, that's how quickly things can happen. I'm not saying that, you know, it's easy to make a change. But it's easy to make a change or easier to make a change when you're going into a process that allows you to become more natural. And um, and that's the key. You know, the more natural you become, the easier it is for you to make changes. It, it, it is that simple. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, but you need to understand why it is you're doing it. And, you know, you're going to miss a few putts because, you know, the, the, the hole is just too small, but it's not. It's, it's the perfect size for playing golf. It, it should be difficult to get the golf ball in the hole. It shouldn't, you know, we had six-inch holes, then it would just become more complacent, I think. I don't think, we, you know, we'd, we'd necessarily, you know, lower the stats. Of course we would, you know, statistically, if you make the hole 50% bigger, it would make it easier. Certainly if you make it 50% smaller, it's much more difficult. So, you know, we were... Um, you know, it is the perfect size for golf and, you know, it, it should offer us a challenge, but the recreational golfer can be as good as any tour player. You know, I, I will stand yeah. by that and, you know, let anybody test me on that as well. You know, test test yourself to become the best putter you can be. And you haven't, look, you've got day jobs, most of you. So, you know, you, you would want to be able to do your day job, 
an hour's practice, you know, and I'm not saying an hour's practice three times a week, 20 minutes, three times a week, an hour's practice, and you can learn the skills. And, you know, if you put a little bit more practice in, then ultimately you could absolutely better, you know, any of the tour players out there. They're playing on perfect greens all the time. You're not. You're a better candidate for being a better golfer because your greens are not as pure. You're putting on mm -hmm. pure greens. You really can't have an excuse for missing putts, but, you know, um, you know, there's a little controversy for you. Um, it's, um, you know, the controversial statement of the hour. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that, is, that is it. You know, there, there are no excuses really for missing the putts, you know, that some of these players do. Look, you know, I, I get all the pressure side of things as well. I, I get all of that. But ultimately, you know, these, these guys, majority of them are not putting from an instinctive position. And that's why they're very, very good at being controlling of the club. But if they could ever learn to putt from an instinctive position, they would hold so many more putts. And, and that's my challenge to a tour mm -hmm. player. You know, it's, um, it's to be instinctive. Do you think, Andy, like the kind of next wave of technology is going to be revolutionary or is it something that you feel that... Is there anything that is missing? So out of all your um, support aids and technology that you've got, is there anything that you think is missing? Maybe is, is it that instinctiveness? Is it something that's going to can get you in that optimum position? What are your um, thoughts? I, I, yeah. Wow, um, there's a, there's a question. Right? You never warned me on this one, did you? Um... <laughs> I like catching you on your toes. No, on on no. my toes, shooting from the hip, uh, off the cuff, and all of those <laughs> cliches. Um, I think I, I I think we can get putters better balanced. Um, that's something mm -hmm. that's. Um, I'm not wrestling with. I haven't got the time to wrestle with it. Um, and I'm not going to lose any sleep over the fact that I think putters are not uh, as well balanced. The putters, the, the, the sweet spot of a putter is based on the mass of the putter. So, you know, if you move the weight to the extreme edges, then, you know, like we see, the manufacturers are moving weight all the time to the extreme edges, then ultimately... Um, they're doing a good job of making putters more stable on the miss hit. If you strike it out sweet spot, there's no um, deflection, there's no sort of rotation of the club face. I think once we identify that the sweet spot is significantly lower on the majority of putters than we think it is, you will then understand, um, you know, balancing a putter out a little bit more. So, you know, because the majority of the weight is low down in the club, if you look at the club from the back and look at the profile of where the weight is distributed, you'll see that you've got the face. Imagine sort of an L-shaped profile if you're looking down um, from the toe towards the heel, um, you know, down, down the line from there. Um, this L-shaped profile has all the weight at the bottom. So, you know, that would suggest that the sweet spot needs to be down there. And subsequently, we're actually hitting the golf ball higher up the face. So we're not even hitting it out of the sweet spot on the, um, you know, sort of the vertical plane, um, the up-down principle. But, you know, it's the left and right that causes the big misses. So, you know, you need to hit the sweet spot. It's only about five or six mil wide anyway. Um maybe seven on the more stable putters or the larger putters, but you know, that's, you've got a very small sweet spot on the club. So, you know, when you have got a club that small, you know, it's extremely difficult to um, ultimately find the sweet spot 
that's where you need to be instinctive um, so you can deliver the club back to the ball consistently each time online, um, on plane, with the loft at the right uh, amount, with the right amount of rise angle to get the appropriate skid on the golf ball, you know, before roll takes over. And then, you know, so that, that when it comes down to the club, that's ultimately what we're dealing with. When we're looking for technology to make that instinctiveness happen, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure... You know, there are people out there who are techies. You know, I mean, I love love the concept of of hack motion. I love the way that it goes and measures, you know, any movements going on in the hands that we're not necessarily familiar with. Um, you know, at an affordable price as well. You know, relatively. So, you know, from my point of view, you know, that's that kind of technology is great. Same with you know people like Blast and and the like. But again, it's down to numbers at the end of the day. The amount of golfers that I get coming to me that saying, oh, my putting sucks, but I don't know how many putts I have. Simple question, how mm -hmm. many putts around? You know, so I want two, two answers, uh, ultimately. How many putts around and how many foot length are you holding um, in a round of golf? That's it. And, you know, I can work out the rest from there. You know, if we're hitting lots of greens in regulation, that's fine. You know, we have a really good you know putt number you know sort of below 30 you know if you're averaging more than 15 greens you know it's a great round of golf but if you're um you know you could well be five or six under par at that point in time so you know without doing anything really spectacular over 100 feet of putt length hold you know i think is a is a key component you know if you can average over 100 feet you're still only averaging about five to six feet around um, per green so it's not a ridiculous amount um, but you know you're counting your tappings as one one foot uh, if they're just a tapping of less than a foot. So you know 18, 20 feet would be really really bad round of golf. You're just tapping everything in. But of course if you dialed every shot into the green, you've knocked it around in 54 and made you know 18 birdies. You know fantastic. But ultimately, I think when it comes down to it, is that you know you need to know your numbers. You need to know um, that that level of data, which you know how many putts and how many feet of putts are you holding? Because um, that really gives you the true measure of how good a putter you are. It's no good to turn around and say, you know, I'm having 24 putts around, but, you know, I'm only averaging 35 feet of putts, you know, because, you know, your tappings, you've only hit four greens in regulation. It's, you know, you're great with a wedge, but what happens if you actually get it on the green, you're likely to three putt, you know, if you're 20 feet away. Um, you might be better with a wedge than you are with a putter. But you get inside a couple of feet and just knock it in, and it counts as a single, you know, single part of a foot or, or whatever. You've not made a lot of foot putt length. So you know, to measure yourself as a putter, you need to know those two two pieces of data. Do you think then amateur golfers out there, and even professionals, if they will do it more than an amateur, but of recording statistics on a golf course, if that's using your your phone, if that's using. Um, R-cast game golf, the kind of data capture forms that are out there. Do you think that's important for amateurs to, to kind of embrace and they don't embrace at the moment? I, I, I definitely think that there's a lack of embrace. Um, you know, and, and time is, is one of the issues as well. I mean, you know, we'd like to make it as automated as possible. Um, you know, we're working on a system, you know, ourselves now for a number of years and, it, you know, it, it wants to be as simple and as timely as possible we don't want to have to think about you know sort of 10 stats to collect as we finish the hole and walk to the next tee because the next tee shot's more important than anything that's just happened on the previous hole 
I think when you look at things like Arcus and Game and you know ShotScope and all these others that are out there um, for measuring, they do a good job, but they generally then miss putting. You know, I, I, mm. guys, forgive me if I haven't seen the latest equipment that is measuring putting in more detail. But the, the, normally, you're lucky if you get the one, two, three, four putts that you've had on the green measured. Um, let alone, you know, where you've put it from, how long the putt, etc. I mean, that again would be something that would be, um, you know, particularly good data. But um, you know, I think you can't really do that unless you know exactly where the flag is. And of course, all the systems that we mentioned are not necessarily knowing where the flag is uh, on the green, so we can't measure the length of putt for you. It'd be great if we could, you know. Um, you know, it has a rough idea, of course, but you know. Ultimately, you know, the, the, you need to triangulate that point of reference, and you know that starts to get a little bit sort of over the top in terms of technology. Yeah, you know, when it comes down to it, though, you know, the more knowledge you have about the shots that you are taking and where, the easier it is for you to target your capabilities. You know, so I need to practice yeah. my short game. Okay, fine. You know, is it inside fifty to one hundred yards? Is it inside? You know, sort of ten to fifty yards. Is it bunker shots? Is it putts per you know, per green or you know putt length on the green? You know, what is it that you're not doing? Um, it, you know, it's amazing how many times folks say to me, "Oh, I can't chip," and actually don't even know what a chip is. You know, they're telling me that a chip shot is something from thirty or forty yards away, and actually that's pitch shot. And you know, they're actually very good at chipping around the greens. So, you know, or, or Conversely, otherwise, you know, talk about pitching around the greens and, it's, you know, the little dinky chip from the fringe that they're struggling to play and actually from 30 or 40 yards, they're great, um, relatively. So, you know, I think there's a there's a, uh, a naivety towards getting the, the right information that's going to help you lower your scores. And that's, that's key. Yeah. Going into the first major of the year, that sounds very strange yeah. saying that, um, a Harding Park next week. What are your thoughts? Who who's who's in line for the for the championship? Uh, I think it's interesting that uh, I mean the talk has to be. You know, the Tigers not played this week. Um, preceding a P- US PGA, Tiger would normally play, but preceding a Masters, he wouldn't um, normally play the week before. So, you know, is he switching up his thinking that you know? It's another major, and he's not playing. But he's only played once since uh, March. And I, yeah, uh, he, you know he looked rusty. He, you know he looked good out of the blocks initially, and you know then he looked a little rusty, and he, you know kind of just made the cut on the scramble number, and he, you know didn't really get going over the weekend. So you know Memorial, I think. I'd like to have seen Tiger in this week's field. It'd have been four rounds of golf. He's obviously, I say this obviously, I mean, I, you know, reading between the lines, I'd say that he's not 100% fit because I think given the fact that he's got a chance to make four rounds of golf play, you know, he, he obviously wants to tee it up in the USPGA, but, um, you know, was wary of something, um, you know, so whatever reason he was not playing, he pulled out relatively last minute. So, you know, I think he anticipated playing, obviously, um, and then pulled out. So, uh, you know, I, I, 
for that reason, I think I would rule Tiger out. Um, knowing that momentum normally follows a suit, then with another week of working with his with his coaches closely in hand, I think I would have to stick my neck on the block and say, no, Tiger, Brooks Kepka. That yeah. would be, you know, he, he he's, he's a momentum uh, golfer. He's got some momentum. He, he, sure, he'll be a little bit miffed that he didn't, um, uh, you know, he didn't get the job done this weekend. But given where he's been, he's shown that he's got some game, you know, which means he's competitive again. He's obviously had his coaches in, uh, in situ and, you know, he's... Um, Obviously, he's, you know, swing coaches, you know, in, in um, Harmon, you know, for whatever reason, hasn't been getting the job, all of the job done. Because, you know, that's why he's a swing coach. He's, he's not the short game guy and he's not the putting guy. Um, and clearly, you know, Pete Cowan and, and Phil Kenyon have been able to get his game up to speed. He obviously thrives on having his team around him, knowing that he can rest on them a little bit. Um, knowing that they're there to help him out, um, you know. So, so there's some interesting when you get the team together scenarios that take place. And you know, I know a lot of players who play so much better when the teams around them. Um, you know, and I think again, you know, when it comes down to it, it's a big event. So he he gets his game up for the big events, the bigger events. So WGC, you know, co coincidence that he's got his team around him you know, inside his bubble and, you know, yeah, great work by Phil and, and Pete and Harmon in order to be able to get his game to a place where he feels like he could compete and, you know, clearly, albeit probably on three cylinders or three wheels, um, a little bit like Lewis did, he didn't quite get the job done, but ultimately, you know, he got very close. So I think, yeah, he's, he's the man really. Who's your outsider? Who's your kind of, coming up the rails last round, making a, a fight. Who's the kind of underdog? Who do you think's maybe got a chance of top five, top ten? Oh, top five, top ten. You're giving me a long odds. Um, go on, I'll go top five. Top five, go on. Who's going to... Who's, or, or make a charge. Drop me, throw, you, throw you mine first. Mm. I'm going to go Jason Day. Okay. All right. Played well the weekend. Played, played well. He's he, he's just got that little bit of consistency he needs. Who's yours? Can I have two. Go on. Um, Matt Fitzpatrick. Tom, yeah, nice. Love, love his game. Lewis. I think Tom showed some form. I think he'll get over the the little glitch with the putter over the last couple of holes. Um, and I think he'll take the form into into this week. I think he's um don't 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 know the guys at all, but you know. We've we've seen their games. Tom's certainly a gutsy player, and I think if he's got a little bit of a weakness, he may be a little bit too gung ho for um, the USPGA. That said, we don't know how the course is set up yet. Um, so yeah, I think either of those two for top five um, certainly. And I, look, I don't think Jason Day is going to be a million miles away, and Phil. Mickelson even found something. Yeah. You know, um, you know Justin Thomas, of course. You, you know, they've, they're now, they've won all the guys that we're talking about, except for the English two. I think they're ready, you know, to start to contend in the bigger events. I think, um, you know, they're showing some form, which is great. And, um, you know, if they, 
have their beliefs. The other thing as well, they've got their coaches around. I'm not sure about Tom so much, but I'm sure Matt will have his team around him and a Phil's around. So, you know, those those guys there will just give him that opportunity to just turn, um, you know, turn a screw and, you know, just find a little extra, um, you know, this week. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be, you know, potentially, it has the potential to, to throw in uh, a bit of an outside golfer as much as, you know, the the obvious, you know, top two players of this week, um, you know, in Kepka and Justin Thomas, I think they've they've probably got to go in as the favourites for this particular event. Um, you know, yeah, Tiger will always be up there, but, you know, I just think Tiger could be a little bit ring rusty. Yeah. The USPG always does that, doesn't it, really? It always throws in some, some yeah. names that you may have not been familiar with of winning the tournament and... They kind of come through the come through yeah, the field. you know, it, it is the the one major where you know if you haven't, you know, if you've not won one, it's likely to be the most winnable of the majors. Um, you know, as the first major, um, as we've seen so many times, and um, you know, there's a lot of players have won that as just their first major, and of course, it's a major, so you know, it shouldn't be belittled, but you know, it would. It's commonly known as ranked as number four. The fact that obviously this year it's coming in at number one, you know, in terms of the first one of the year, I think it was partly because it was the last major. I think it got a bit of a bad rap the time where it's hosted yeah. the tournament really, really well. And, you know, it just it hasn't sort of met the billing of, you know, the, the Open, the, the US Open, the Masters. You know, it's like purists take on the Open and, you know, we all love the Masters. You know, so we, how do you separate the four? I think, you know, the fact that the USPGA also invites um, USPGA club pros into the mix. It'd be nice if they were to offer, you know, a, a, you know one or two of our guys an opportunity to, to make it, you know, a little bit more credible in terms of, um, you know, a you know, an opportunity to contend in a major that's not the US Open or not, but the um, the Open Championship, you know, because we know club pros aren't getting into the Masters, you know, so, you know, and that that would be nice. I understand why they wouldn't do that, of course, that's fine, you know, um, but it would be nice to, to have a couple of club pros from here, have the opportunity to contend with the guys that they play with, you know, in the PGA Cup and, um, you know, those of you that don't know, that's obviously the uh, the Ryder Cup of the club pros, um, you know, which is closely fought battle, you know, um, pretty much every time it's played these days. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a great tournament. I think, it, you know, a championship, I think it'll be, you know, well fought out in the end. I don't think there'll be a runaway winner. Um, you know, that will be my, my first thoughts. You know, is it time for John Rahm to win a major? Is it time for um, Bryson DeChambeau to to feature in a major and and put contention, you know, in, right in the right place? But I think he's got a few little demons he needs to sort out in his head first. Um, yeah, as as we all know, I did think that you know t towards our finish here, Brooks Kepka's joke about oh, there's an ant um, when he had buff was uh, you know nicely tongue in cheek. Um, and kind of suggests the way that the players, you know, have, have taken this uh, ant gate um, 
to uh, to to the level it probably deserves. But um, yeah, I think you know we saw it with Brooks, um, not with Brooks, sorry, with uh, Matt Coocher, didn't we? A couple of years back, you know, a couple of contentious rules issues. It was looking for plug ball lies and all sorts of quirky stuff going on in you know in the middle of the fairway, and you know, just asking for kind of the nth degree in a in a non-ethical state of rules application and i just think you know the rules are the rules you've hit the ball out of bounds accept it you've hit the ball in into the tree roots accept it you know if you were if there was a raging ant's nest there then by all means nobody would have contended it but um, there wasn't one or two ants is definitely mm-hmm. um not the way to go so yeah you just um tarnish your reputation a little bit when you try and push the envelope of the rules too far um rules are there to yeah, help exactly. us we know that they're there to make sure that everybody is fair, but to, um, you know, uh, and I'm not going to say that it's going to cheating point of view, but it is a little bit of um, pushing it to the point of uh, definitely not quite in, in the game hand. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Good stuff. Thank you, Andy. Another great show. Yeah, I've, you know, again, look, there's so much to talk about, isn't there? You know, we can talk all day. You know, we've got a great opportunity to spend time, you know, working, working things through and, um, you know, we've uh, obviously got the, the website, obviously, is, li- is live now at andygormangolf.com. Uh, um, you know, we've got some cracking training products in the, in there. It, uh, go and have a look, guys, and, and see uh, what your thoughts are. We're more than happy to hear those and um, pass your comments on, obviously, from a coaching point of view. I'm still around, still working face-to-face and online, so looking forward to... Uh, working with this week's clients. I've got a very busy diary again from tomorrow, um, office day today, and a few more phone calls to make this afternoon and uh, scheduling, uh, recording and filming for next week as well. So uh, looking forward to to catching up with you in the studio next week, Uh, Gareth. We'll probably be recording uh, the podcast from, I would would assume it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, we'll do that next week. Fantastic. Be awesome. Right. Thank you, guys, uh, ever so much for listening. Uh, can't do it without you. And, uh, you know, we, well, we can do it without you, but it's always nice to know that you're listening. And thanks for your comments and kind words. We uh, do appreciate them. So uh, until next week, we will catch up with you. Roll them nice and tight and uh, hit them nice and long and straight. We'll catch up with you next week. Bye for now. <laughs>